You are listening to The Music Room with Aileen Miracle. Hi everyone, this is Aileen and welcome to episode 40 of The Music Room. I am so excited for you to listen to this interview with my good friend Nissa Brown. The title of this episode is Beyond Methodology, What's Possible in Music Education. It's a really exciting interview with uh, lots of ideas about what you can do in your music room to move beyond methodology. Here's a little bit about Nissa. Nissa Brown is an international consultant specializing in professional and curriculum development for music educators. With strength and experience working with Backwards Design and the National Core Art Standards, where she served as a writer, Nissa inspires educators to connect best practices in music education to current practices in the broader field of education. This approach integrates music as a subject area and music educators into the broader educational community of the school, strengthening the learning for all involved. Most recently, Nissa served as an elementary music teacher at the American School of the Hague in the Netherlands, where she was also performing arts coordinator and elementary team leader. She draws on her kindergarten through ninth grade vocal, choral, music teaching experience in the U.S. and abroad while presenting at local, regional, national, and international conferences on topics that include global music, 21st century skills in the music classroom, technology integration, curriculum assessment writing, and professional learning. Nissa served as a grade 3-5 subcommittee member during the recent development of the National Core Art Standards. Nissa served as music education coordinator for Minnesota's Perfect Center for Arts Education and coached teachers in over 100 school districts across the state of Minnesota. She was one of 10 finalists for the 2004 Minnesota Teacher of the Year and received a prestigious Millikan Educator Award in 2004 from the Millikan Family Foundation. Passionate about teaching in a global context, Nissa taught at the American Embassy School in New Delhi, India, and in both Namibia and South Africa, through a fellowship offered by the Eastman School of Music. Nissa is a faculty member of the Kodai Levels training courses at Indiana University and the University of St. Thomas. She also serves as an adjunct professor at the University of St. Thomas and Augsburg College. Nissa studied in Hungary at the Kodai Institute's summer seminar in 2002. She released her first CD in October 2000, Packwood or Paradise, and is currently recording a CD of lullabies. Nissa graduated from the Hart School of Music and Hartford College for Women in 1998 with a Bachelor of Music and Education and a Bachelor of Arts in Women's Studies. She completed her Master of Arts in Music Education at the University of St. Thomas, 2008. She earned her mastery certificate in Kodai Studies from Kodai Brigham Young University in 2001, and she completed levels 1 and 2 of ORF training at the University of St. Thomas. Before we start the show, I also want to mention that if you go to the show notes at mrsmiraclesmusicroom.com and click on podcast, then podcast 40, then you will find a link to sign up for a freebie that Nissa has created, and the freebie is entitled The Ultimate Music Curriculum Design Toolkit. She is such an amazing educator and an amazing person, and I'm thrilled for you to listen. Here's the show. I am so excited to be here with Nissa Brown. Hi, Nissa. Hey, Eileen. So I would love to dive into a lot with you in this podcast episode. First, can you tell us about yourself and your music educator journey? Absolutely. So I currently live outside of Amsterdam and I just started a new business actually called Music Ed Forward. And that has been sort of an, a 
next step in uh, what has been uh, before that uh, 21 years in the both public and international school system. So I uh, started out teaching in Minnesota in the public system at a Spanish immersion school. And after that, I jumped to teaching, uh, working more with adults actually in professional development. I worked at the state level for the Perpich Center for Arts Education, which is like the arts wing of the Department of Ed. And so I was able to work more with adults. So I spent five years working with folks all over the state of Minnesota and got to do a lot of work with curriculum and standards and working with folks, you know, pre-K through 12 and even um, undergrads and grad students, uh, which was really cool. It was a really, really great challenge and helped me really rethink what was important to me as an educator and what was important to my students. And at that point, I actually jumped overseas. So I taught at the American Embassy School in New Delhi for a year and I was covering a sabbatical for someone. So it was just a one-year stint. And then I moved back to Minnesota again. I taught a year there and I didn't mean to jump around so much, but I was offered the opportunity to uh, move back overseas again and teach at the American School of The Hague. And uh, that was kind of an offer I couldn't refuse. So I said yes, and uh, spent five years doing that. And then I just left that job because it was too much to do uh, the consulting work that I was doing and working with teachers and to continue in a full-time classroom. It wasn't fair to kids to be gone so much and it, it wasn't going to work on, on any front really. So I took a big risk, took a jump, took a leap and started this uh, music education forward business. And I um, have been working with international schools this fall and traveling around and uh, working with teachers in professional development and curriculum development. So that's the short version <laughs> of yeah. uh, my adventures. Awesome. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. Yeah. And I know with a lot of your work, you have been working with standards revision and standards creation. So can you talk to us about how the process of writing standards has changed your thinking and your teaching? Yeah, absolutely. I think I was one of the very first... I don't know if I can say this with certainty, but one of the crew that came out of undergrad with a really strong familiarity with the 1994 music standards. I was in Connecticut doing my undergrad at the time. And so for me, standards have always been a part, even from my undergrad, a really strong part of my understanding about teaching and what we're doing. And you know, anything that we have from the beginning, we kind of take for granted. And so I didn't really realize the role that standards played in the framework of my thinking and how foundational that was until I started to work at the Purpage Center. And the, one of the jobs of the Purpage Center in Minnesota is to make sure that teachers have the resources that they needed to implement the Minnesota state standards at the time. And so that was a great opportunity for me to see how other people understood standards or how, what role they did or didn't play in their lives and in their teaching philosophies and values and things. And that was a, it was an eye opener for me in a really, really good way to think like, oh, wow, there's so many different ways that people see this. And it was such an honor to be led into people's classrooms and people's visions for their students. It's something that's so personal to each teacher as it should be. And that was a huge gift to me to understand the role that standards played to a greater or lesser extent with various teachers. So that sort of was always my framework for standards. I was able to be a part of the National Core Art Standards Writing Committee. Mm -hmm. Ironically, it was the year that I was in India. Um, I Skyped in. I got to school at like 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning in order to be able to use the Wi-Fi on campus, which was better than the Wi-Fi in my apartment. I would actually like teleconference in. It was before we have some of the really strong video platforms that we have now. And I was part of the grades three through five writing committee. So there was the 10 people who were in the core committee. And then each one of them had a specific responsibility for the smaller writing committees, the grade level specific, or like the high school banded 
high school specific courses that they were writing for. So I was a part of the grades three through five committee themselves. So anyways, that's my framework on teaching standards. And it certainly is not all inclusive. If I had been on a different writing committee, I would have perhaps a different understanding. And that would have been great if I could have, you know, been in multiple places at one time. But so I think the process of having learned with standards, like having that been a part of my journey, and then having had the opportunity to write them, it showed me what I took for granted in my paradigm. And it's always really great for us to know what we take for granted what we assume, because assuming isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's sometimes an unhelpful thing. It helps us not communicate as clearly. So the process of writing standards really clarified for me some of the things that I had assumed in my own mind and my own teaching. And it also helped me clarify my values because as we were writing these standards, the core committee was working with the other core committees, say like the media arts committee, the visual arts committee, the dance core committee, and the theater core committee. And there were some things that they agreed upon at the core committee level that got handed down to us and we had no say about just like any system that we work in, right? We don't have a say in some things, but there were other things that we really got to, to craft for our grade band and the grade three through five committee was no different than that. We were also a committee that really asked some thoughtful and persistent questions of the decisions that were made in the core committee to help make sure that we were as clear and cogent in our thinking about how we were rolling this out as possible. I learned that you don't always get what you want when you're writing by committee. I learned that lots of folks have different values and come at things really, really differently. And when you write by committee, you sometimes get what you want and you sometimes don't, but you come away having learned a lot from any conversation you have about curriculum or standards work. And I think it really was a clarifying process for me about what I valued. And it also challenged what I valued. I ended up shifting my thinking a little bit, which we may get to a little bit later in terms of, you know, what was the shift, but it definitely clarified and shifted for me some things that I I saw differently, given the fact that education is changing around us and the world is changing around us, that what worked for me in 1994 is not what my students need now and in the future. And that was a big shift shift for me as well. Wonderful. I actually was able to serve on a standards revision committee for the state of Ohio. And a lot of what you just said, I can completely relate to because it was such an awesome experience. I encourage if any of the listeners are able to work on standards creation or revision, it is such a cool process. Yeah, just the collaboration in the small committee, like the subcommittee that I was in, but then we were able to sit down as like a K-12 with all of the subgroups together and really align our thinking, which was really cool. And I don't know what exactly is going to happen from that because, you know, they still have to put the standards out for feedback, but it was such a cool process. Yeah, you really, anytime you get to talk with educators who are teaching something different than you, whether that's a different level or different content. I'm thinking like for the National Core Arts Standards, you know, you have the ensembles portion of the standards, but you have also say the harmonizing instruments. Anytime you talk to anybody who's teaching something different than you, you just learn so much, right? Like you learn about how we see kids' musical experience all the way up and how we want that to be consistent for them and have a thread that we pull through as well. Yeah. It's not just standards creation or standards revision, but also collaboration. It's a really cool collaboration process and learning from each other. All right. So my next question for you is, what is the role of the methodological trainings we take, like ORF or Kodai levels, in the current landscape of music education? Wow. Well, that's a great question. And it may be a little bit of a controversial one. I'll be very interested in people's feedback and thoughts on this as well. I definitely have my perspective, which has changed over 
the 21 years that I've been fortunate enough to be in this profession. Um, I think we're in the same years of that, aren't we? Aren't you in about 20 as well? I'm in my 21st year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I just started my 22nd. So we're like totally on par. So I think the best way to answer that is to talk a little bit about my experience because I was steeped from the very beginning in Kodai and Gordon to a certain extent mixed methodology. I did my undergraduate degree with John Feyerabend, which was an unbelievable blessing in that I came out of undergrad ready to start sequential teaching right away. Like I understood spiral curriculum. I understood sequential teaching. I understood, you know, sequential rhythmic work, sequential melodic work. There was so much power in the framework that I had been given. And that actually served me very, very well because the first school that I taught at was a growing, a brand new school that had not had a formal trained music teacher for their students for Mm -hmm the students kindergarten and first grade year. So I came in when the oldest kids were in second grade. So it was a K through two school and there had never been a music teacher who had music training at the school. So it was come in and start from scratch, which I would never have been able to do, like never have been able to do without the undergraduate degree that I had. And I understand I have many dear, dear friends who are undergraduate professors. And the reality is there is too much to teach teachers in the four years of undergrad, right? So I say that with no criticism towards anybody. We all find our way through that as college professors or as students. So I say that really, truly without judgment, but I can say that what I received worked really, really well for me in the situation I found myself in. And I went on, so I studied with Dr. Feyerabend and I also studied with uh, Chris Azara as well, who was at the Hart School when I was there. He's uh, since moved to Eastman and he's Gordon trained music learning theory. So I had like a really strong base in those two. And then uh, I right away wanted to do my Kodai levels and I wanted to do sort of a more traditional approach to Kodai because I wanted the kind of balance to balance what I'd had in my undergrad that I could really make sense of it myself. And so I went into a a pretty traditional um, Kodai program at Brigham Young University. And it was amazing to watch my teaching bloom, I feel like. And I hope my students feel the same way. After each level, each Kodai level, I felt like, okay, I, I have an understanding of what this is and what I'm doing and why it matters and how it builds. So by the time I was done with level three, probably plus one year, I always feel like it takes a good four to five years to really implement what you learn in your levels, mm-hmm. uh, just because you can only do so much of it at a time. That really by the time I had you know, been teaching for about five years, I, I felt like I knew why I was doing what I was doing. And I was never so disillusioned to think that what I was doing was best, but I really understood and believed in what I was doing. And I think that that's just so important. Anytime anybody says to me, you know, especially elementary music folks, if they say to me, you know, how do you recommend going about training? I always say, take a methodology all the way through, because I think it's really, really important. And by all the way through, I mean, like, take all of your Kodai levels or take all of your ORF levels. Right. Because I think it's really important to be able to do deep stuff with what you know. And if you only take Kodai 1 and ORF 1, you have a good beginning sense of those methodologies and they complement each other so beautifully. And I also have two ORF levels as well. And I fully recommend get, you know, getting as much training as you can get, but I think it's really important to do something in depth so that you can take your students through deeply in one very intentional way. And then after you have that in place, I think it's really important to get as many different perspectives as you can so that your own palette is as broad as possible. Because the broader our palette is, the more responsive we can be to kids Mm -hmm. as well. So that's, I think that the trainings that we are so fortunate to have are really foundational and cornerstone to the work that we do with students. 
what I've learned mostly because I didn't think I was getting real good professional development and I didn't understand why. When I was a teacher, I, I was seeing the math teachers and the reading teachers and the science teachers getting this phenomenal professional development. And they're using all these terms that I didn't really understand and I didn't have access to as a music teacher. And my Kodai training and ORF training weren't use, wasn't using the same language. It's not unrelated. It just wasn't the same language. And so I didn't really have a seat at the table and neither did any of the other music teachers when we were talking about what everybody else was talking about mattered most in education. And I also didn't understand why we weren't getting that training, although I didn't really want to sit through math professional development either. Right. Yeah. It was, you know, a little bit of a catch-22. So that's actually how I ended up at the Perpage Center was I was noticing as I looked around in my first 10 years of teaching that we weren't getting as music teachers the kind of professional development that was best serving our students or us as teachers. And so I started to ask, what would that look like? And I ended up writing my master's thesis on the application of a professional learning communities model to a K through 12 district music staff, basically, although it applied to any specialists uh, really across the district or across the school for those of us who are teaching in K-12 settings. So I, as I was asking these questions, I ended up sort of inadvertently, honestly, knee deep in professional development research, because that's what you do when you write a thesis, and started to say, to notice that there were these really, really awesome opportunities that music teachers could have if somebody knew how to translate it for them. But the reality was most district or oftentimes school, if you're again at a pre-K through 12 setting, curriculum directors, although heartily, heartily well-intentioned, don't have the expertise. And they do have people breathing down their necks about math and reading scores, not about music. So it was one of those that it sort of, I just found that it fell by the wayside. And so I started to think about, well, how could I be of service? How could I do some of that translation? Because now I had some of this professional development research and background, and I also had the music skills. And that's actually how I ended up at the Perpage Center was when that job came open to, to be the state music coordinator. I had a match of skills that not a lot of folks that had the opportunity to have that I happen to stumble into, right? So I think that one of the things that are, this is a long answer to your question, but one of the things that's missing from a lot of the conversation that happens in our methods courses is how does what we do in our methods courses, like ORF levels or Kodai levels, how does, what does that mean in terms of writing broader curriculum because a lot of times what we end up talking about really is scope and sequence and scope and sequence is just to be very very reductionist is you know when do you teach tan tadi or tan titi when do you teach rest when do you teach so me when do you teach mi re do and those are really really important things but we wouldn't be satisfied with a math curriculum that just talked about when do you teach addition when do you teach subtraction right, right we want to know why it matters. And that's a legit question for kids to ask. Why does this matter? Well, we need to be able to answer the same question in music. And so I think a lot of the learning that I'm most excited about in the work that I'm doing right now is really helping music teachers take that really, really strong foundation of scope and sequence or of, I'm thinking, instrumental music, teaching kids just rock solid foundational technique that helps them then be expressive and emotive and talk about, and why does that matter? How are other subject areas talking about why that matters and how it impacts kids and how they use this when they leave our classrooms? And that being through the vehicle of music, of course, music is the language we speak to do that. But when we contextualize their learning more broadly, I think that's where the magic happens. That's where we connect with other subject areas without sacrificing music. But what that requires is that we have a vocabulary that nobody has been prepared to teach us or very few somebodies have been prepared to teach us because we miss each other 
And a lot of what I do is I act as a translator oftentimes between music teams and music teachers and even music leads, like the music team leader or something for a district or for a school to talk with their curriculum director. Because oftentimes it's just a matter of language and it's a matter of misunderstanding because we don't often speak the same language. So making sure that we are able to engage in those broader conversations and really engage in this idea of you know learning that transfers or learning that's conceptual, that's based on concept. And I don't mean so in me or Tan Titi when I say conceptual, I mean broader thinking and reasoning transfer that kids can use so they know what to do with their music when they leave us and when they leave our classrooms and when they go on to, you know, in my case, I taught elementary, when they go on to middle school or when they go on to high school or when they go beyond that. And so I think that that's one of the things that our elementary trainings could include a bit more of. And if they don't, which is fine because they offer something so valuable, music teachers are really able to get access to the other language and the other frameworks that help them be a part of these really transformative conversations that are happening across education that sometimes we get missed in. Yes, I love that. I have often, I've I've talked to other music teachers about this and have had conversations with myself about this, that, you know, there are so many times where we as music teachers sometimes miss the connection between what's happening in our classrooms and what's happening in a math classroom. And I think sometimes when we hear math, or language arts, when we hear just the subject alone, we switch off and think, well, that doesn't apply to us, when really it does. It's those broader educational strategies and philosophies. Like, I think we've had conversations about UBD or understanding by design, Mm -hmm. and how that's very similar to how we long-range plan, as we've been taught in Kodai levels, Mm -hmm. you know, how we backwards design. And just having those terms and that language is so important for teachers to have so they understand that what they're doing, how that translates to broader educational terms. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think there are ways in which one of the things I think is so powerful about the, the core art standards is that they offer us a seat at the table in exactly the ways that you're talking about in a way that we haven't had access to in the past. And I think that that's a really valuable thing to look at in terms of the core art standards, even if your state doesn't happen to be adopting them, not your state, specifically Ohio, but just in general for the listeners, that if that's not something that your state is adopting, that there is value in understanding where those came from, because there was a, you know, a meta-analysis of standards from 13 different countries that got brought together to make some decisions about what happens here. So they're not haphazard and they're not accidental. And I think that that's, they're, they're a really, really rich resource, whether or not your school or state or district has adopted them, hook, line, and sinker. They really provide some really powerful framing and some powerful perspective for us as music teachers to enter into that conversation. So no matter people's perspective on them, I think that they offer something really, really valuable. But again, they need some unpacking, which is part of why I made the jump actually is because people were saying to me, who wrote a book on this? Or who's teaching a class on this? Or how can I learn more about this? And I'm like, well, there are people doing pieces of it. But in terms of all the things we're talking about, I'm not really sure. And so that's why I jumped because I thought, you know what, I love kids and I love teaching kids, but I actually think that I might be able to be more of service in helping people make sense of these things at a meta level by serving a different role at this point in time. So anyways, that's honestly how I ended up here is that I think that we need space, time, and facilitation to understand these things. It doesn't happen in isolation. And that's how most of us work given the nature of our jobs. Yes, for sure. Great. I love it. I would love for you to also, kind of an extension of the last question, but tell us about how your philosophy and approach to teaching and learning has shifted over time. 
Yeah, let's see. I think the easiest way to sum that up is going to be to also sort of mirror for folks the shift in standards over time. Because like I said, for me, that was a part of my undergrad from the very, very beginning. And all standards have in the past, say ours were the 1994 standards, but all standards sort of of that era were quite knowledge and skills based. So Mm -hmm. it was, you know, reads and notates music or, you know, improvises and composes very skills-based. It's about what, what you know, the nouns and the standards, or what you can do, the right. verbs and the standards. And that's the way that all standards were constructed. And sometimes I think when we say to people, you know, we need to get beyond the knowledge and the skills, there's a couple of different reactions that happen and, and they're totally legit. The first of them is we are a performance-based discipline. And if you can't do it, you've got nothing else. Or if you can't you know, know it well enough to talk about it well, I'm thinking more of the respond stuff, you don't have anything. And that's legit. That's true. Um, And so I I think that there's can be a really, really strong pushback against what we have to have knowledge and we have to have skills. And there's absolutely, I, I have absolutely no problem with that. Of course, that's the way it is. What's changed then in the standards revisions of late is that we've moved to this more, this idea of transfer. It's what can you actually do with the fact that you can sing in tune? Why does it matter? How do people change the world with that? How has it impacted history and society? And that shift is not just a music shift. Um, It's not just a visual arts shift. It's not just a drama, theater, media arts shift. All of the standards around us have shifted in that way as well. So one of the keynote presentations that I was able to give last year at the Association for Music and International Schools, I was asked to give a keynote on how does the state of the current you know, paradigm on music, music education, fit in with the paradigm of broader education? And I thought, wow, that's a tall order in a 20, 30-minute keynote. Right. Um, but I, what I decided to do was to compare it with math and science. And so I found the smartest people I knew on the math common course standards. And it was actually, to be direct, it was the Aero Common Core, which is the international schools. I was speaking with international teachers. So um, Aero is a, an organization that lots of international schools refer to in terms of standards. So it was the Aero Common Core math standards. And then it was also the NGSS standards, which is the next generation science standard. And so I found some really, really smart people and said, all right, talk me through this. What is this stuff made up of? Why does it matter and how is it different? And oh, did I get an education? It was incredible to talk with these really, really smart, passionate people about why this stuff makes a difference. And in talking with them, I realized that it is such a shift beyond just what we know and what we can do to why it matters that we know it and can do it. Mm-hmm. So part of that is just a sort of, can kids see you know, music in the community? Can they know where to find it like for themselves? Do they know how to interact with music once they leave our classrooms? But then into that broader context of, okay, so who cares? Why do we need to know? that? How does it impact our lives? And so then we get into the context, the personal, social, cultural, and historical contexts of music. Personal, you know, why do we perform music? Why do we write music? Why does it matter personally to us to have music in our lives? The social piece, how has music impacted society and how has society impacted music? Historically, how is music a reflection of history or has it helped to shape history? And then the cultural piece, which I know is a, a huge and such a necessary focus in terms of helping us understand ourselves and who we are, but then also helping us look beyond who we are and find uh, commonality and uniqueness through music as well in terms of understanding folks from all around the world and folks who live in our, in our communities and in our schools with us. So 
all of those things really talk about why the knowledge and skills matter. And I think that's the piece that really shifted for me with the being involved in the NCAS, the Common Core Art Standards, or the Core Art Standards, is that I've moved from really focusing on the knowledge and skills as an end to really being a means to an end. So it's not that we don't teach kids what they need to know. It's not that we don't help them with all of the skills that they need to actually music. Music is a verb, active music making, but it's that we then help them make connections as to why that matters. And those shifts in my classroom helped me turn the learning over to kids and we sometimes think about like, how do we have kids drive the learning a bit more? Well, when we shift to the why does it matter and still have a really, really solid knowledge and skills base, it's really easy for them to ask questions about why it matters. When we have great essential questions, when we have strong enduring understandings, which are modeled in the NCIS standards, we have a jumping off point that helps kids understand why the knowledge and skills matter and how it makes a difference to them and how they can make a difference through music really broadly. And so my approach to thinking about what matters and beliefs and values shifted, but also my entire approach to curriculum writing shifted as well. My scope and sequence stayed the same. And, and as a, a Kodai trained teacher, my scope and sequence is pretty strong and it's quite aligned. And none of that went away but it didn't stop there. It then started to add on these bigger elements of the enduring understandings, the essential questions, um, unit themes that are tied together by things that matter in music, but are not limited to music. And you know, how do we find what those units are that don't take us away from the music curriculum, but help us make connections through and deepen what we're learning in music as to why the knowledge and skills matter. And that was a huge shift from when I finished my undergrad to now, you know, in my 22nd year. Right. So when you're looking like specifically, what does this look like in a music classroom? Would you say that you are doing more thinking routines and more discussion, just thoughtful discussion with students where they're really thinking about what they're doing instead of just doing it? Yeah. I mean, it means so many different things kind of depending on what I'm trying to accomplish. So let me give you a couple of examples. I think from the respond perspective, finding repertoire that I'm already doing in my classroom that meets, say, literacy objectives, literacy in the broad terms, not just rhythmic and, and melodic work, but literacy in the idea of being able to connect those songs. Let's just take the example of, let's say, functional music. So music like lullabies and work songs my first quarter with second grade turned into understanding the role of music in our community. And all of the songs that we were doing anyways, repertoire that I would have chosen for them to sing, play, dance, was already a part of that theme because functional music is so much a part of what I think is important for us to understand is that music serves such a strong purpose. But that same then theme or guiding question helped me choose respond examples, diverse respond examples that students could then use. I tend to call them like listening protocols, but I think it's similar to what you're talking about with thinking routines that you're asking them, you know, what do you notice? What questions do you have? What do you speculate? Um, that's a descriptive review protocol that asking them to think in oftentimes less guided and if they need it more guided ways about what they're noticing. So you're getting at the reasoning, you're getting at that connecting piece, uh, create, perform, respond, and connect. So that sort of seamless connection at a at a level beyond 
scope and sequence of what we're doing in the classroom, what we're responding to, what we're performing, what we're bringing in guest artists to help us with. So I think that would be one example of that shift to more transfer-based unit planning. Another example, and one of the things that I'm unfortunately seeing states leave out when they are redrafting the core art standards into their state level versions, I'm watching folks leave out the process components. And the process components are basically what I say to kids is, you know, what is it that musicians do? Musicians create, perform, respond, and connect. The process components are the steps that musicians take in a non-prescribed way. So the, the question there would be, how do musicians create? Well, first, musicians imagine, then they plan, and then they make that plan. They give it a try. Then they evaluate and refine that plan. And then at the end, they uh, present it. It's intentionally not performed, but present. They can present it to a classmate, or they can present it to the class, or they could put it on stage. So that whole process, I realized the power of that process because I was doing this whole process, taking kids through it. I posted them on my wall and took kids through these steps in quarter two in arranging and improvising. I was asking them to arrange and improvise. And then what I realized is because I had lovingly beaten this into their head so strongly, when we got to the composition unit in quarter three, they were so familiar with that process that I could have sent them home over the summer or over our you know, longer winter break and said, you know, go write something. And none of them would have asked me how. Because all I would have done is put it to the wall and said, well, first you're going to imagine, then plan and make. Well, how are you going to make a plan? Are you going to write it down? Are you going to use music notation? Are you just going to draw some pictures to help you remember? Like they had an entire process by which to be a creator of music because that was the outline that was given. So this idea of having process, we talk about content-based standards, that's the knowledge and skills-based standards. And then we talk about these process-based standards, which exist in other disciplines as well. The process components that we have in NCAS are powerful in and of themselves because they are non-prescriptive routines, if you will, or processes that students can employ in creative ways that take them through the steps of being a creator, a performer, or a responder. That in and of itself is a packaged gift to them that they can take with them and transfer after they leave us as well. So much good stuff. Thank you for those specifics. You're giving me a lot to think about as I'm interviewing you, so I'm excited to listen to this again and (laughs) write down notes to myself. All right, so in your experience, what separates music learning from the past and music learning for the future? I think the cornerstone piece of that is going to be that movement from what do you know and what can you do to what can you do with it and why does it matter? And I think that there are so many powerful reasons to approach things that way. And I guess I think a couple that I haven't mentioned yet, just again, to be maybe a little bit more specific, is that the knowledge and skills pieces, and let me just acknowledge that if they don't have the knowledge and skills pieces, they don't have a lot of Lego blocks to work with, if you will. Each one of those knowledge and skills pieces are Lego blocks, and they can't build if they don't have anything in their hands, right? So metaphorically speaking, of course. So it's really, really important to do those things. And, and I just want to honor, you know, for those folks who are listening, who say, you know, I see my kids for 30 minutes once a week. 
you know what, the units that I talked about are based on seeing my kids more than that. So let's just keep it real from the beginning. You might end up doing a lot of skills-based work in quarter one and quarter two. And in quarter three, they might finally have the chops that they need to do a more process-based composition activity. So you take advantage of that and you go for it. So let's just be really, really non-judgmental of ourselves based on the time that we have. You know, if you have a music program that's not aligned and the knowledge and skills, you know, you have different people teaching different things with different philosophies and not the same scope and sequence and you get you know half second graders you had last year and half second graders that somebody else had that other teacher has a wonderful skill set but it doesn't you know necessarily line up well you're going to have some catch up to do in order to get all of your kids now on the same page in order to get them to do what you want to do so i guess i just want to be really clear to say to people you have to start where you are and build those knowledge and skills intentionally they have to be there so I think when we get to that point that that thinking about, you know, transfer, once they know stuff and can do stuff, the thing that can help us, I think, also is to think about, well, you know, that whole process-based piece naturally lends itself to more inquiry type of learning or problem solving based learning, however you want to call it. It leads itself to more student driven choices. It leads itself to, for instance, one of the things I changed from doing was instead of just having kids create 16 beat compositions where they would put in, you know, the right rhythm stick notation. And then underneath it, they would write in the solfege that, you know, to go with the stick notation. And then they would transfer that based on the rhythmic and melodic stuff that we were working on in class. You know, the third graders would do what third graders were working on, fourth graders would do what fourth graders were working on. And then they would transfer that, say, to notation software. So then they were using standard notation. They would use Notate Me Now and they would put that on an app. That's a fantastic activity, and it's, it, that takes knowledge and skills to be able to do that. But the shift that I then made was to say, okay, but why do people write songs? You're writing a song right now, but why do people do that? And so unpacking that with specificity, you know, based on the grade level, deciding what the unit was about. But basically, one of the things I did with third grade was we talked about, you know, well, why do people write music? And they came up with, well, you know, people write music for celebrations or people write music for football, soccer games, people write music, funerals, you know, and we did some responding to get them, you know, to have a palette of ideas. And then we started to talk about, okay, so how does music for a funeral sound versus how does music for you know a soccer match sound what's the difference and we basically just took the comparatives that they've been working on since they were in kindergarten and we started to talk about okay what kinds of rhythms would you include in a song that would be for a football game what kind of rhythms would you include for a song that might be for a funeral we talked about you know do and lo la as ending tones so what do you think would be more appropriate if you wanted something that was for a soccer game would you end on do or would you end on la and so you know we talked about not trying to oversimplify but having it be simple enough that they could make some conscious choices about what they were writing because now they're listening to music differently. Like, oh, well, this music feels this way. I wonder what it was written for. And then they have the capacity then to make some of those artistic choices themselves, which is not something that I had asked them to do. I had asked them to compose a 16-beat pattern using the knowledge and skills that we had done in the past, which is a legitimate task. But to add that layer of reasoning didn't add that much more to my curriculum, but it added incredible depth to their understanding of why music matters and how it exists in the world around them. Yes, and really, just like a five or 10 minute conversation can add so much to a lesson. 
I mean, for what I'm interpreting from what you're saying, it doesn't have to be this big, long unit that you're adding to a lesson, but just having the conversation with them. Okay, you know, now that we've done this, why are we doing this? Or why would other people do this? Yeah, and even front-loading it as well by, you know, intentionally, I would typically have kids listen at the end of class, either to me sing something or to respond to a video or something. And I know what's coming in four, five, six weeks. So I front-load their listening with respond protocols. You know, what did you notice? What, you know, what questions right. do you have? What do you think is going on in the music? Hint, hint, that's where we're going, right? right they don't yeah. know. They just think it's a fun conversation about this really awesome piece of music, right? right? But front-loading a listening example for four or five classes before you ask them to make some of those choices themselves and really dissecting what elements of music did a composer use to make you feel that way, it gives them a whole different palette. And it doesn't cost, you can't see my air quotes, but it doesn't cost that much time. And yeah. the payback for the kids is pretty rich. I really love the specific examples too. Thank you. Sure. Right. Oh, I know you just got back from Beijing like yesterday maybe? Uh, I did yesterday. Yeah. A little, <laughs> little jet lagged right now, yeah. but it's all good. Yes. So, and I know you've traveled all over the world. So can you tell us about how your travel and experiences around the world and around the country have shifted your thinking about music education? Yeah. I graduated from my undergrad with such a strong and functional set of skills, and I could not be more grateful for those things. I think one of the the beautiful things about being on the planet longer and longer is that you realize how little you know. And that's a really, really great thing because it keeps you so humble and it keeps you so curious and so open. And so I think one of the things traveling all over the world and getting to work with all over the world is that I have had so many things that I took for granted or assumed were just the way that things were done in music education or in life, let's be honest. And it has given me the opportunity to question those things. And sometimes I come back to thinking what I thought before, because it, it was just clarifying for me. But more often than not, any experience that I have, you know, talking about education, talking about, you know, how people live, talking about opportunities, uh, you know, political structures, whatever it is, it causes me to question those assumptions that I've always had. And that, to me, is such a gift, because it helps me continue. I hope it keeps my brain young, to be honest. It also helps me to never feel like I have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And that's a place I, I really want to stay. I want to stay in that place of curiosity, in that place of, hey, here's what I know. Here's what makes sense to me. Here's what I just learned. Here's how it changed me. Now let's have a conversation and let's, let's see if that pattern happens all over again. And it invariably does. Every site I go to, I can tell you why I come away based on the conversations that I've had with teachers at that school or at that site. I've learned something. My mind has been changed. My thinking has shifted. I've been inspired in a new way. Or they write a unit that I just blows my mind. Or they riff on something that I think, oh my gosh, I never would have gone down that path. But that is so cool. I just think having the more diverse minds and diversity of conversations and diversity of people that I am fortunate to come into contact with constantly keeps me in that state of growth and that state of wonder. And that helps me be a happier human, but it helps me, I think, be a better, more responsive teacher to my students as well. Because of course, I taught students from, from all over the world as well. Uh, at American School of The Hague, we had students from over 70 countries. Oh, wow. And many of them would come into the school and be learning English for the first time. Mm -hmm. And 
you take so much less for granted, uh, you know, when you have the opportunity to see the world through someone else's eyes. That's always a gift to me. From a standards standpoint, I've taken a look at those 13 different countries that were studied to get a sense of, you know, where do we want the NCAS standards to go? And, and I wasn't a part of this. This happened above my pay grade, as they say, uh, uh-huh. although we were not paid to do the standards, just so nobody right. is confused. Um, <laughs> but those decisions that were made above me uh, in the hierarchical sense, but it was really, really fascinating to just even go quickly through that research and to sort of see the values of different countries coming through the way that their standards are organized or the contents of those standards. There were some similarities certainly as well, but I think that the way that music education shows up in communities around the world is also representative of the countries from which they come. And that's a really, really cool process. If there are any, any kind of research culture, music ed nerds out there who want to check that out, that's a really, really cool summary of a bunch of research as well. So thank you. All right. So you have given some great specific strategies and ideas, but which resources would you recommend for those people who would like to start moving beyond methodology? Oh, that's a great question. Well, there are definitely some great, I'm trying to think of the things that are just most broadly, widely accessible. I would recommend looking at the core art standards, frankly, no matter what you've heard, no matter what anybody else has said, take the time to look at them, talk about them with somebody else who is open-minded and just see what you notice. See what you think the opportunities are. See what questions you have. I have questions. I didn't get everything I wanted either, right? Anything written by committee is not going to be like that. So, you know, I think one of the things that we have to, when anytime we look at anything, not just core art standards, but anything in life is to say, hey, this is the part that resonates with me. This is the part I'm not sure about. And hold both of those equally without, you know, writing anything off or any one off. There's always two sides to to everything. So take a look at the core art standards, notice what's there, notice the possibilities, notice the contextual learning and see what possibilities exist from this conceptual standpoint, from this transfer-based standpoint, and see if there's anything that inspires you to look at what you're doing differently. So the model cornerstone assessments are available on the website as well. So I would recommend that folks check that out. If you go on to the main part of the website for the NCAS standards, there's a toggle box at the bottom that says model cornerstone assessments, and they're written for multiple grade levels. So grade two, grade five, grade eight, in create, perform, and respond. And then also for the various different high school classes at different proficiency levels. So no matter what you teach, there's something that's in the ballpark of what you teach available there as a model cornerstone. The way that the music cornerstones decided to approach it, which is a little different than the visual arts, interestingly, as a conversation for for another time, but the way that the music folks decided to approach it was really just to teach through each creative process, each process, oh gosh, each artistic process, there we go. So the artistic processes are create, perform, respond, and connect. And so the connect is actually embedded in the create, perform, respond, so you won't find that separately, but it teaches all the way through the whole create process. So I approach that differently depending on what folks' power standards are, and I have a whole process of how to go about that, but that would be a really, really great way to move beyond methodology in that sense, is to really to look at one of the cornerstones all the way through and say, okay, what are these process components? Why do we, how do we teach all the way through one of these? And I always say to people, look at this as a template. Look at it as something that it's a draft. Look at it as something that you would revise yourself based on who you are, who your students are, what they already know. I am notorious for not taking anything that I'm given exactly because I want to cater it to 
my students. I want to cater it to, you know, whatever site I'm going to. I cater everything to the people in front of me because I want it to be most meaningful and transformational for them. So I would encourage you to do the same thing if you're interested in these cornerstones is to say, okay, what part of it resonates with me? What part of it would I go more quickly through than they recommend, what would I substitute? What would I add? And how would this type of teaching make a difference in my classroom? Give it a try. I always say action research is the best way to know. So I would definitely look at the model cornerstones. The other thing that is cool is that there is a looking at student work aspect as well. So if you want to kind of get a sense of like where your kids are compared to where some sample work is for NCAS, that's another thing that's on the website as well. And so you can see how did kids fill out these model cornerstone assessments? What does their responding look like? What does their reasoning look like? There's sample worksheets, there's model rubrics, there's scoring guides, there's all kinds of things that are great models for us to think about. Wow, how am I doing it now? And how is this recommending that I do it? And how could I possibly put those together? So that would be another, I think, great resource for folks who want to sit down and kind of dive in and dig in. Because of this need that I found for folks not to do this work in isolation, but actually to do it in community and in collaboration, we actually started at American School of the Hague last year. We ran an arts summit, basically, which was the first year was the National Core Arts Standards and Understanding by Design and how do we put those two together. So it was basically backwards design using NCAS. And uh, this year we will run that same summit again at the end of January. And we're also adding a level two. And the level two is for anyone who did the Ash Arts Summit last year or has worked with me or Jeremy Holine at their site or their school or through a workshop of some kind who has an understanding of that. And we'll take it a little further and look at conceptual learning and unit design. And how do we do that in a really meaningful way, integrating all the things that we've really talked about in the podcast as well. We also, in case you've got any international folks who are listening, we also have one in Shanghai as well. That's only a 2.0 and that will be at the end of February. So I'm trying to create opportunities for folks who want to have these conversations uh, to do that in community. And at this point, we have in-person events uh, to do that. And also that's part of my gig is to, to be responsive yeah. to folks who want to do that work. So that's really, that is the work that I'm doing when I go out into schools, when I go out into, to do workshops for professional organizations, when I go into districts, that's the work that folks want support with. That's why I took the leap and took the risk is in the hopes that I could help fill that void that a lot of folks were feeling. I think it's amazing. I'm so excited. And I can link in the show notes. I have the show notes at mrsmiraclesmusicroom.com. And then you can click on podcast and then podcast episode 40 to see the show notes. And I will put links to NCAS standards and a link to specifically where you can find those cornerstone assessments. Is that what you were calling them? Yes. Model cornerstones. Absolutely. Yes, and I need to check those out too, so I'm super excited. One more resource that I would like to add that I think I want to dig into more after this conversation is Making Thinking Visible. Ah, yes. is a great book, which has the thinking routine was the phrase that I used earlier. It has mm -hmm. a lot of thinking routines in it too. You know, sometimes we want to have those deeper discussions with our students, but we're not exactly sure how to frame it you know, how to ask it. So that book is a really wonderful resource. So I will link to that as well. 
I actually absolutely love that book. I think it's fantastic. And anything from Harvard Project Zero, which is uh, where that book comes out of that school of thinking, which is really, really powerful. I would recommend anything, including there's a couple of books, I think, that have followed that one as well. And the other thing along those exact same lines, I'm glad you said that one of the books that the Purpose Center published, it's actually, it's a free PDF and I will get you the link so you can post to it as well. It's called the Artful Teaching and Learning Handbook, I think. And they actually have an entire section about protocols specifically geared towards art teachers. Oh, wonderful. Arts uh, teachers, plural. So yeah, not necessarily yeah. specific to music, but it really is about how do you read, quote unquote, read a piece of art, you know, when you're listening to it, what do you listen for and all those things. So I think that would be in addition to the making thinking visible, that would be a, a great art specific place for folks to get started as well. All right, Nissa, so many wonderful ideas, but now I would love to talk about what we're consuming. All right, so I just last night watched a documentary on CNN, and I think it was just called RBG, but I'll look it up to make sure that that is correct. It was about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I'm going to be honest, I really didn't know much about, you know, I knew she was on the Supreme Court. I didn't really know too much beyond that, but just hearing what she has done in her life is just so inspirational. I really felt like, oh my gosh, she's my hero. Like she just, the women's rights that she fought for, you know, you just think about how far we've come, right? Yes. Yeah. Just having that perspective. I think sometimes we forget to look back on what came before us and even 20 years ago, even 30 years ago what the landscape looked like. Um, It was really inspirational to watch. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's so easy to take for granted without any intention to do so, right? Of what we don't, our very recent past. Yeah, wow. I posted something on my Facebook personal page about the documentary and there was another documentary that people were talking about and I can't even remember what it was called, but I could try to link to that in the show notes as well. So I think there are a couple documentaries out there, but totally worth the watch. It was really inspirational. What about you? What are you consuming? Awesome. Now I want to watch that. So that will be what I'm consuming. Um, (laughs) However, I have many podcasts that I really like, and I just have a few that I don't miss an episode. And one of them, and this is not directly music education related, however, certainly has helped me over the years. I listen to Tara Brock's podcast. So Tara, T-A-R-A, and then Brock, B-R-A-C-H. Tara Brock is a Vipassana Buddhist meditation teacher. She's had different, you know, iterations of practices throughout her life that she's, you know, gone through as a, a spiritual seeker. But one of the things that she does so beautifully on this podcast, the podcast itself is actually just a recording. I shouldn't say just, it is a recording of her talks that she gives at the Insight Meditation Center of Washington. I think that's what it is. Anyway, she's in Baltimore. And they're just beautiful, beautiful talks about how the things that are hard for us, the things that are beautiful in life, and some really, really practical tips about how to be with monkey mind, how to be with moments that are difficult, how to be with moments that are difficult with other people. She has a PhD in psychology, if I'm not mistaken as well. And so she combines these two things together just really, really brilliantly in a way that is so compassionate and so humble and so educational. Uh, She's an amazing teacher, actually, just to listen to the way that she shares her message is beautiful. But there are so many things that 
are really, really hard as a teacher. The way that we need to cope with a system that is never perfect, the way that we have kids that have really, really high needs. Sometimes we don't know how to meet them. You know, the things that are hard in our own lives and we have to take care of ourselves in order to show up and take care of these little beings and try to be a positive member of the system that's hard. So she's just really, really graceful and compassionate and kind and practical about ways to ways to be with the things that are hard and find ways through them and find ways to care for them in ways that can allow them to be less difficult, have less stressful maybe energy. And I think she's really an amazing, amazing teacher and an amazing person. So I would highly recommend anybody to whom that sounds good to, to give it a, give it a listen. Yeah. I'm always looking for new podcasts. I will have to check her out. Well, Nissa, it has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm really excited for people to be able to listen to this and get some great ideas for moving beyond your curriculum. Can you tell us where we can find you? Where can we find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to say thank you so much for having me on the podcast and thank you for all of your incredibly valuable, thoughtful, growth-minded, the ways that you approach music education is, is so meaningful to so many people. And you're such a real person while you do it, which is, I think, one of the reasons that people resonate with you so deeply. So thank you for all of your contributions you. and for, for allowing me to be a, a part of the podcast. I really appreciate it. So. Well, and I should say that I feel like a lot of the ways in which I've grown as a music educator is really because of you. I don't know if I've ever told you that, but oh. um, you know, way back in the day when we were on the membership committee for OAKE together. That's just right. Watching, yeah, just watching you facilitate and watching you lead and teach was such an inspiration to me. And I really, I think, adopted a lot of, or tried to adapt a lot of what I was seeing. And I just, you have been an inspiration to me. So thank you. Awesome. Oh, my pleasure. We had so much fun back in the good old days. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We were the Brown sisters. (laughs) That's right. Oh my gosh. Oh, funny. Okay, so to actually answer your question and not sabotage it, I apologize. Um, so my the website is um, Music Ed Forward. So that's how folks can get a hold of me. There's a uh, contact information there, and if anybody's interested in more information about you know stuff that's coming out, there'll be a podcast, there'll be you know other resources and things that are available, upcoming trainings, all that information will be on the site. So it's musicedforward.com. And there's also a contact newsletter if folks are interested in having things show up in their mailbox, you know, just without their needing to do anything. So those would be the best ways. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nissa. It has been such a pleasure. It has been amazing to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you.